Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Kilban. That was pulled away in the middle. It'll come to Holland. He's done it. Matt Holland with the equaliser. What a moment for the Irish. And didn't he strike it well? Hello and welcome to a brand new series called The Lockdown Interviews. This is Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. My name's Sam Davis and over the course of lockdown, myself and Jeff Hayward have been coordinating a number of interviews that have been going out both live and recorded via our Facebook account and also via our YouTube channel as well. You may have seen them, but some people have wanted to listen to them, so... We're bringing you the full audio of each and every person over the course of the next two weeks or so until the Premier League season begins. Some of the audio is a little bit sketchy, so if you've watched YouTube, you'll know that some players have got dodgy internet connections or bad Wi-Fi. It's not us, of course, no, but... uh, We've managed to get some great nuggets from some of the people that we've interviewed. And in today's episode, it's a player that graced the pitch in the 90s and then was sold, earning the club a big wedge that we needed at the time to pay the players. First up, it's Matt Holland. We cannot wait to introduce our main guest, a Cherries player in the mid-90s that pulled on the AFCB jersey over 100 times, played nearly half a century of games for his country, played in Europe for his club, played and scored in the World Cup for his country too. It is Mr Matt Holland. Matt, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I haven't risked the haircut just yet. Uh, (laughs) depends Depends how long this lockdown goes on, whether I shave it or not. 
<laughs> it must be um, a strange old time for you at the moment. Well, for everyone, but um, it, you're obviously involved heavily in the media and um, obviously there's nothing to talk about, is that? No, not really. So hence, I'm, uh, I'm doing lots of podcasts <laughs> uh, like, like today. Um, I am working still for Talk Sport, doing a few bits and pieces for them. So I've got a, uh, obviously a mic here in, in front of the camera and um, I'm able to sort of broadcast from home. So that's good. And a little bit of stuff for the Premier League as well. They, they use something called Cloudcast and we've been able to um, get sort of three or four people talking at one time on certain subjects. Uh, so at least I'm doing a little bit of work, but it is, it is very strange to be at home as much as I am. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, yeah, so thanks for coming on. It, and it's really strange because whilst every after every season we have a break for a few months um, in May, June and July, every season, it always ticks over with transfer speculation, lots of media hype, etc. But this is the first time in the world where we've, we're really having a proper break from the game. And it's um, great for fans like us, especially Bournemouth fans, to put things into perspective and sort of realise how far we've come and we thought we'd chat to you because you've you've played in one of the club's most darkest times you've gone on to achieve success in the game whilst also re, you know witnessing recently cherry's recent success on the pitch i mean as a player tell us a little bit about your football youth before you joined bournemouth because i gather you were at uh, west ham and arsenal before the competitive football uh, got started is that right yeah I mean I, I was actually born um, up near Manchester uh, moved south of my dad's job when I was about nine years of age um, the, actually the first club I, ironically the first club that I was involved with was Southampton um, they had a satellite centre uh, near to where I lived and they picked picked me up just you know watching um, Sunday morning football and inviting me along to train with them um, so I trained in their centre of excellence in fact I was actually once a mascot for Southampton as well because they were so. They were so no, this is this is true. They, they were so desperate. They were so desperate to sign me um, at, at sort of nine, ten years of age um, that they brought me down to Southampton, made me mascot for a game. I think it was against Oxford, if I remember rightly. Peter Shilton was in goal. I got a couple of pictures from from being a mascot for Southampton, um, which is madness, really, uh, to think that I then went and played for for Bournemouth as, as many times as I did. Um, uh, then I, I left Southampton to join Arsenal in their sort of set, youth setup. Um, they released me, said I was too small. That was a nice way of saying I wasn't quite good enough at that age. I ended up at, at West Ham, sort of fifteen, and spent you know five or six good, really good years actually at West Ham. Really good grounding, a good learning base for me. Um, some really good coaching. Uh, had a couple of loan spells. Uh, went to Farnborough, obviously Bournemouth on loan before eventually signing for the club but um so that was that's pretty much the build-up to, to joining Bournemouth. Um, whilst you were there mate uh, I think you've admitted yourself that in the youth setup there were players who were a bit uh how can I put it more technically gifted than perhaps you were but but they never went on to make anything of their careers and I, I just wondered how that how that sort of helped you comparing yourself against more technically gifted players did that give you an extra drive to be successful? I always had a drive really and in a drive to be a a success I mean obviously there's no guarantee that you're going to make it at all and and I'm, I'll go on record and I've said it all along that there's there's a lot of better players than me that never made it as a professional footballer um you know obviously you have to have technical ability to be a professional footballer but as I say there were better players than I was but I think I had a, a better maybe mental approach to the game um you know I had a, a inner drive and inner desire to be the best I could possibly be. And fortunate enough, it was it was enough for me to then have a, a decent career. So, um, yeah, I, I, I know that there's a lot 
better footballers than me that never made it. But I was very fortunate and one of those that, that did. Yeah, interesting. Um, so obviously your loan move came about to AFC Bournemouth. Would it be safe to assume that Harry Redknapp, as former boss of West Ham, had a huge say in that taking place? Well, I, 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 very much so. I mean, I, I went in his office and um, I knew there was sort of a couple of clubs who'd shown an interest in taking me on loan. Uh, and he said, oh, Peterborough, I think, was one. There was a couple of others. He said, but you know what? Bournemouth would be a really good move for you. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> so so that was pretty much how it how it panned out in his office. And um, I'm really glad I made the move. Uh, I had a brilliant time there. Uh, couldn't have been more impressed, really, with the, the management and, and the way that Mel, you know, looked after after the group, really, not just me. Um, so it was it was the right call. And, and it was definitely the right move for me at that time. Um, but I just needed a little bit of guidance from Harry to say, yeah, that's the way you should go. Yeah. And so you joined, what was it, January 95. And um, that was part of a, a run-in that became known as the Great Escape. How aware uh, at that time were you of the challenge facing the Cherries? Because it was nine points at Christmas, rooted to the foot of the table, um, and at that season, I don't know how many people know this, but five teams were being relegated that season, not four because of the way the Premier League was reducing the number of teams. And that had an impact on on all the clubs slower down. So, you know, it must have it must have been something to think, well, I'm going to come to a club that's that's absolutely going to get relegated here. Well, I knew it was a challenge, of course, um, but I also knew that it was important in my development as, as a footballer uh, because, Playing reserve team football, it's it's good to a point. You know, obviously you're playing against senior players who have not perhaps played in the first team um, and you're learning the game still. But the three points don't really mean anything. You know, if you win or lose, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get relegated. You're not going to get promoted from the league that you're in. So actually, that was a sort of it was great playing reserve football. But playing first team football was much more important to me at that point where on a Saturday you look at the result and what has it done for us? Those three points, where have they taken us? Have they got us a little bit nearer to getting out of that relegation zone or you know, further on, has it, those three points taken us into the playoffs or whatever it might be? It just means something. It means something to the fans watching as well. Um, so I think that was really important at that stage in my career that I was playing first team football and getting that experience and exposure to, you know, the, the pressure really of, of three points on a Saturday. Was it quite a culture shock for you, uh, sort of moving straight into first team football? And not only that, it was a team that were in a dire position that needed points week in, week out. To, to be honest, I think the culture shock came really from from the facilities and looking around the place. You know, not 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 so much the you know the, the fact that we're in a relegation battle or anything like that. Um, but when you turn up at, at you know the club and it, you know it's in a bit of a state, really, if we're being honest, you know, it needed. A, lick of paint it needed this the pitch wasn't great didn't have money really to spend on anything you know when you're traveling away from home it, most of the time we, we did travel on a friday but when we traveled up on a friday we, we had to try and find a bit of grass to try and train um sometimes willow even jokes now he said you know he, he sort of gave the, the hotel the check uh got on the bus as quick as he could and let the bus go just in case the, just in case the check didn't bounce because there was there was so you know there was so little money at the club um, on the bus home, you know, we, we'd get 
two pound at the garage to go and spend and get a sandwich and a drink maybe and that was that was pretty much how it was whereas at west ham you know you're on the back of the bus you're getting fed you got a microwave someone's cooking you a meal well i actually i was a youngster growing up at west ham and it traveled with them a lot the first team so i was the one who was making them the meals and making them a cup of tea on the back of the bus but they, you got what you got well looked after and the training facilities were great the stadium was great you know coming to bournemouth it was a bit wow washing your own kit for training um yeah, finding a scrap of land to play, to, to practice and train. That was the that was the big culture shock, I think. That was the big difference. So what do you actually remember of your home debut? Because I think you played as a sub, didn't you, against Huddersfield in a game at the end of January, which I do recall we didn't come out victorious in that one either. We didn't. I don't know if that's a leading question or not, but I, <laughs> only, no, only, beca- only because I, I, the thing I remember most about it is ripping my shorts within about 30 seconds of coming on. So I came on, made a tackle, and then my, short, my shorts split down the side. So I had to come to the to the dugout, like whip, literally whip them off in front of everyone, put a new pair of sh- put a new pair of shorts on, and back onto the pitch. That's what I remember most about the um, the debut. So yeah, that, that I mean, I know I think it was against Huddersfield, and we got we did get beat two uh, 0 I think on the day. Um, but but the thing that sticks out most was me ripping my shorts and having to change and getting a few wolf whistles from the crowd. It's funny that, you know, Jeff was speaking about players previously that, um, you know, you obviously had the consistency, you were fairly injury free. And it was uh, that, that you, your consistency that led you to have the path that you had, whereas some technical, you know, some players that were very technically gifted perhaps dropped off. Um, were there any players in that first stint, maybe the great escape season or maybe when you were opponent signing that you felt circumstances maybe led to... A situation whereby you know they couldn't progress whereas perhaps they should have i do you know what I was, the, the standard actually was was of a, of a high one really the players that that mel brought into the um into the football club uh you know that had been a, a lot of them had been at premier league clubs and hadn't quite made the grade and get into the first team but technically were a lot of there was a lot of very good players mm. uh when i arrived i thought scott mean was someone that, that you know well, he eventually did get he eventually did get a move. Injuries probably played a big part in him, you know, perhaps not kicking on in, in his career. Um I mean Jonesy, Steve Jones was was someone that, you know, did play at a good level as well. Um, but the, I think that the team was Russell Beardsmore had played at a top level with and United. So there was a number of players in that squad at that time who who um I don't know. I thought we're all all technically good, and and with a bit of luck, you just don't know, do you? I mean, Neil Young, I thought was another one at right back who who you know I played with his brother Luke at Charlton in the Premier League, and I think Neil, you know, could have done that as well. It's funny because um, Steve, we spoke to Steve Jones in a previous podcast, and he said that um, he played with some frustrating players, one of whom was Jason Brissett, and he said that on his day he was absolutely incredible and could take anyone on. But he he just um, you know finished his statement by saying, unfortunately, he just didn't have many days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember Steve Robinson was a, a really technically gifted player. And I, it was interesting what you said about being too small at the youth stage, Matt, because um, I think a lot of Bournemouth players in, of that era, they always, we always felt that we were a good footballing team and we picked probably smaller players on our team than a lot of the sides that we were playing against, you know, who are much more physical. Did it did it feel that that way when you were playing? 
don't know. We had Big Fletch. He was. Oh, uh, he <laughs> <laughs> he's not. He's not a small man. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you're. You're right. I mean, there were, there were a lot of, I guess, smaller players. Um, you know, John Bailey was someone, but he had a big heart. Robbo had a big heart as well. You know, they, they, you look at what Robbo's done now. He's gone into management as well. He was always someone that I thought that might have that that in him really to go on and coach at least. You know, maybe not management, but certainly coaching. I thought he would go down that route as well. Um, so we did have, you know, we, we did have a lot of um, smaller players, if you like, but we did, you know, we did have a couple of big ones as well. Hmm. What did you think? Obviously, that great escape season, um, everyone came together and we started to get some tremendous wins, and it culminated in uh, that match against Shrewsbury at home at Dean Court, uh, where we won three 0 And you could see, uh, I think there was like ten and a half thousand people crammed in there when our average attendance would usually be maybe three or four thousand. What sort of potential did you think the club had based on all these people who came together? Well, yeah, I mean that, that was a glimpse into what the, the you know the, the club could achieve. Really, when you think how isolated we are, really compared to other clubs, you know how far it is from say Southampton or, or Portsmouth or Yeovil the other way. You know, there's quite a big catchment area. Really, um, maybe it's not necessarily a, a massive football town, massive fo- football supporting town, um, but there's certainly the potential there for big crowds that you know, we've seen now in the Premier League fill out and you, you can't get a ticket for love nor money so uh, the potential was always there we saw it actually you know we'll probably talk about it a little bit later but um, the financial problems when we had the, the sort of the meeting at the winter gardens and the amount of people that turned up and, and I think the first home game after that might have been Blackpool I think and we had we had over 8,000 um, there as well so the potential was there to for the club to, to go places um, but you know obviously um at that time, we weren't sort of weren't challenging to get promoted at, at that stage. And I think when you're winning games, that obviously pulls in more punters and more supporters as well. For me, that Shrewsbury game was the obviously the one that you had to win. But it was the one before that, the Brentford game, that um, Brentford were chasing for promotion at the time. We had to go there and get a get a win. And to do that was some achievement. So do, do you remember that game at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember the game. I mean, we obviously won the game 2-1, didn't we, at, at Brent, uh, Brentford? I, I mean, if you ask me every single minute of every single game I've played in, it's it's almost impossible. But um, I remember those two games, you know, because they were so important to the club in, in terms of trying to stay in the division. So um, I think we, we probably had a decent party after both of them. A few beers, <laughs> a few beers on the bus. Fletcher used to be in charge of that, on the, the beers on the bus on the way home from games. He used to sort of, We'd all be sat on the bus, and the last person on would be Fletch with a big crate of beers, and and uh, we'd, we'd have a few beers at the back when we'd won. Ever the professional, eh? Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah, it, it, nothing's changed with him, has it? <laughs> Absolutely love it. So obviously, we had um, a message submitted, a tweet. Um, consistency leader um, and energetic are just some of the buzzwords that Cherry's fans have used when talking about your time at the club. Um, Therefore, it wasn't long before Mel Machen gave you the captaincy. Um, so Neil Dawson tweeted in and he said, you were the club captain at a very young age. So was that quite a difficult thing to negotiate with senior, pro- senior pros? I mean, did you have to overcome any resistance and how did you feel once you were asked? Well, I don't remember any any real um, problem with it at all, even with senior players. I mean, I, I, I was someone that had, had, I enjoyed the responsibility of being a captain. I've been captain at, at all the teams I've played for at a junior age, 
Uh, I've been captain for um, West Ham's youth team. I've been captain for West Ham's reserves. So it's something that or, I was sort of quite enjoyed being having the responsibility and having the armband. So that wasn't a problem. I don't remember any of the senior players be, being an, an issue with that either. In fairness, it was a very young team. So we, we were a really young squad that Mel had pulled together. Um, Mel was brilliant with me in terms of... I, mean, I always felt I was a, was a captain, um, but... Mel taught me an awful lot about being a captain as well. Uh, and we had uh, meetings re- on a regular basis. Most mornings I'd be in his office, cup of tea, chatting football, um, chatting about how the lads were feeling, uh, you know, even to the extent of how, you know, do we need to do a bit, bit more in training, a bit less in training, what do you think we need to work on? All those things he was sort of, I don't know whether he was trying to entice it out of me, make, maybe make me more, you know, um, responsible in that that area of of, um, of things, but he, he certainly helped me an awful lot, and I think turned me into even more of a, a leader. If that makes sense. Mel Machin always struck me as a, as quite a considered manager. I couldn't imagine him uh, losing the plot or throwing throing stuff at you in the changing rooms. How, well, how had, do you describe him? He did have that in him. Mel definitely had that in him. He was uh, he was a tough character. Mel, a brilliant guy. I mean, I. I thought he was a terrific guy and, and someone I've got a lot of respect for and, and looked up to heavily at that particular time in his history in the game says all you need to know. Um, and I, and I, I learned an awful lot off him, but he, he, you know, he was tough character as well. Um, you know, if he needed to say something, he, he said it. And um, I think, I don't, I don't remember being on the end of too many verbal lashings from him, but there were a few that, that got a verbal lashing. One of my funniest, one of the funniest stories of, of um, Mel is we were playing a game at, at Dean Court. I can't remember who it was against. I'll be guessing. Um, but he came into the dressing room and named the team, went out the dressing room and we sort of looked around the dressing room and said, he's named 12 players. What's happening? So we, we, we can't we can't be playing with twelve. So obviously someone had gone out and told him. But fifteen seconds later, he walks back in and says, "Robbo, you're not playing. You're on the bench." And walked back out again. And that was that was Mel. And he's you know he's a fantastic guy. So when it um you know winding back a little bit. So after Shrewsbury, we had this um entered as uh, sent in via Twitter as well. How do you celebrate after the Great Escape victory? Did Mel sort of allow you to go out and enjoy yourself? I can't remember. Must have been good. Must have been good. Uh, I, I honestly, I honestly can't remember. <laughs> I think I, I think I ended up sleep, sleeping on Steve Fletcher's floor, but I don't, I don't remember much about it. No, it yeah. was, um, it was a good night. So, so speaking of um, Fletch, then obviously um, Eddie Howe would have been around at that time, a young, uh, you know, central defender. Were there any, you know, could you see anything in him at that? point that would lead him to be where he was today because he um he was praised by many in terms of his um he was a cool and very composed footballer um but you know did you think he could do what he's done he's been brilliant hasn't he absolutely brilliant i've, I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing him a couple of times as well for for the premier league channel and he, he's he speaks so much sense speaks so clearly um and i can listen to him all day i, th- I think at the time he was, as you quite rightly say, cool and composed on the pitch. Same off it. I think he was a thinker. You know, even at that stage, I think he was someone that thought about the game a lot and how he could improve and uh, how he could get better and and um, and perhaps how the team was playing. You could see that, and you could again see certainly a bit like Robbo, really someone who would definitely go on and coach because he he had that within him. Whether I I thought he had that 
um, the toughness, the steeliness, if you like, to be. He had a steeliness. He had because he had. I'd almost describe a little bit like myself, really. That inner desire, that hunger to be to be some, you know, to do the best you can possibly be. Whether he had that real nastiness, if you like, that you need, I think, to be a top class manager, I wasn't necessarily sure. But clearly, I think football's changed as well. I don't think you necessarily have to be a teacup thrower like they were in the past. I think it has changed. I think there's there's a, a lot more the mental side of it, the man management side of it, I think is, is much more thorough. And, and Eddie's someone that, that clearly gets the best out of his players. I think he generally puts an arm around them rather than a kick up the backside. Um, but he's, he's done brilliantly. And I'm, I'm so pleased that, to see, as I said earlier, about where the club was at when I arrived and the, the, the ground needing, totally changing, no training ground, um, two pound on a bus on the way and washing your own kit to see where it is now in the Premier League an established Premier League side. It, it just gives me great pleasure. So you were captain at a, a time of great uh, turmoil. How aware were you of the, the financial struggles, the boardroom struggles that were going on? Well, we're aware because when our wage packet or, or was due at the end of a month, it didn't always come. So we, we, um, we, we knew on a regular basis, actually, most months our, our pay was late. It was whether it was a week, two weeks. And I think the longest it was was about four or five weeks that that we hadn't been paid. You know, then and when you're a captain as well of the team, you know you you get a lot of people in your ear, sort of saying, "What's happening? When are we going to get paid? Go and ask, go and speak to the manager. Go and speak." To, you know, so there was a lot of that going on at the time. So we were certainly aware of the the struggles that the club was was having um, because on a regular basis, come the end of the month, we, we didn't have any money in our bank. We hadn't been paid. Mm, that's right. I mean, we needed to raise, I think, 300000 to avoid a winding up order and we owed Lloyd's Bank. Our total debts were nearing £5 million. Um, the chairman at the time, King Gardner, had resigned and it all culminated in this Winter Gardens meeting in front of, I don't know, it's short of about 2,000 fans in the end. I mean, what what was it like sitting on that stage? Because you were up there, sat alongside Trevor Watkins. I, I, I mean, it was totally alien to me. I mean, I, um, being captain as well, being asked to speak in, in front of the supporters and, and that many people was was quite intimidating at, at that particular time. I, you know, I wouldn't deny that. Um, it was, yeah, pretty surreal. I mean, I think it started the week before we we um, the administrators came in on the Friday and were sort of asking the players really if they wanted to play. I think it was Bristol City the next day, mm. and 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 said, you know, it's up to you if you want to play. If you don't, the club will fold, and that'll be it. You'll all be able to be free to leave. And actually, that would have suited some of us. You know, we, we might have got to move a little bit higher up, and and um, you know that that would have been great. It wouldn't have suited others, but to be honest. Every single one of the lads, when we had that meeting, just went, yeah, we'll play. No problem at all. We'll play. And we, we played um, Bristol City the next day, who, again, were going well. And I think we beat them 1-0. Yeah. Uh, and then this Winter Garden stuff, I think it all happened in that midweek after after the Bristol City game. Um, and we weren't sure what, what was going to happen on the Saturday and whether we we're going to play or not. But I think I think they said, the administration said that night at the Winter Gardens that we'll definitely play the game on the Saturday. Um, which we did. We beat. Uh, we beat uh, it might have been the draw against Blackpool um, at home, and there was about eight thousand uh, at, at the ground at, at the game as well on, on Saturday. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff was there. Um, I was there. Yeah, I was there. I was there. <laughs> uh, but I perhaps paid my tenner for the ticket. Um, 
it was it was a surreal moment. It was you know because I've I've gone from a club that's been playing at in the in the Premier League or whatever it was at, at West Ham at the time, uh, the Premiership, and um, the, the facilities and everything that goes with it, and then to come into a club that didn't have anything really. Um, it was a, a real shock to the system, and um, I, we were we were just unsure whether the club would even survive or not. So, fortunately enough, you know, Trevor Watkins got involved, the consortium got involved. We 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 got through to the end of the season, and um, and then I was sold, and and obviously, uh, you know, the rest is history, I suppose. I think it's ironic that the uh, club motto now is, you know, we're all in it together, and and in fact, it felt like back in those times, you know, the players. What you what you said about the players putting a putting in a performance against Bristol City when they weren't sure even if the club would exist was quite an incredible and to win that game was quite incredible but also the way the whole town and everybody seemed to come together as a community in that in that week it was fantastic yeah it was it, it was I, you know I can't speak highly enough really of, of the players that I was involved with in, in the dressing room um, you know because it, it would have been easy for, for the lads to say no that's it we, we haven't been paid for six weeks we, we, I'm just going to go and I'm going to go and get you know a move somewhere else on a free transfer. And you know what? We had such a such a good team spirit. When I when I look back now and think about some of the players I played with, and you know Steve Jones room, roomed with my I had a flat and he lived with me for a bit. Then he went and Steve Robinson roomed with me. We had Jimmy Glass and Jamie Vincent as next door neighbours. Um, Fletch and, and Scott Mean were were close and good mates. Uh, Mark Rawlinson, Chris Casper, they, I was friendly with them. Um, I, you know Rob Murray. I can go through. I can go through the team. We had a really young, together squad, and and because of that is the reason why Bournemouth survived. Did you find well, that, and, um, and the support of supporters? Yeah. Did you find that um, the things that were happening off the pitch were a distraction, or did it almost have the opposite effect and sort of galvanise you so you could concentrate on the football? It, you know, it's funny because I think in adversity, often. That can it can work it, well, it can work two ways and sometimes it can totally dismantle um, a club or, or an atmosphere but actually that did galvanise and it brought everybody together um, and it, it made us even more uh, close really as a, as a unit and as a group so uh, I think I think it's also when you when you cross the white line for instance on a Saturday it's always nice because that's what you're used to doing playing football. And you, for 90 minutes, you're able to forget about everything else that's going on off the field. So those 90 minutes, if anything, were a bit of a haven for the players, I think, just to be able to switch off and say, right, we can we can just enjoy our football. And it wasn't long after the end of that season that uh, you were sold to Ipswich. So what's your recollection of, of that? Because effectively, your, your transfer, again, helped bring an, an amazing amount of funds into the club to, to give us stability. Yeah, I, well, my recollection was that... Um, uh, Ipswich had made a bid, uh, which the Bournemouth didn't find acceptable. I think early on in the in the um, preseason, and it, and it actually it was a move that stalled and stumbled for quite some time, really. And Trevor Watkins was was sort of driving a pretty hard bargain, trying to trying to get as much money for the club as he possibly could. Understandably, um, I was in a position at that time where you know I wanted to to play at a higher level. There was no you know. No question about that, and was very interested in make, interested in making the move to Ipswich, but it, it did linger for about sort of three, three or four weeks um, in that preseason. I think only got over the line of sort of six or seven days, maybe before the season even started. 
um, the following week. So it was something that went on a long time. But Trevor Watkins, quite understandably, was trying to get as much money for the club as he as he possibly could. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And so obviously you went to Ipswich. You were there for about five seasons or so, weren't you? And then they got relegated, and then you moved on to Charlton after that. Did your you know was your playing style similar throughout the whole of your career, or did any of your managers put you any different in any different positions at any point? Well, I think, I, 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 like you say, I, I always thought I was quite versatile. I actually played at fullback a few times for Bournemouth. I played at left back a few times for Bournemouth. Played centre half a lot under under Mel Machin as well. When I joined Ipswich, I when George Burley signed me, he sort of signed me to play in the middle of a back three actually because wow. he'd see me do because he'd see me doing that for Bournemouth. Um, and he, the previous season, they'd had Steve Sedgley playing in that position where they could change from a back three to a back four. And Steve Sedgley would go into midfield. George Burley thought I could do that. Um, that lasted about 10 games until uh, he, uh, he put me in midfield. And I scored, I think I scored two or three games running and, and that was it then. I stayed, in, I stayed in midfield for much of the time. Even at Charlton, towards the back end of my career, I played at the back, played centre-back again. Um, so I, I played in a number of different positions. And, and I guess as... as as you sort of get a bit older and you haven't necessarily got that same capacity to get from box to box, which is something I sort of prided myself on, you know, 33, 34, 35, your game does change. It does adapt. And when you're playing central midfield, you end up being a little bit more conservative. Don't make as many runs, don't get into the box as much, perhaps don't score as many goals as, as I once did. Um, but your job has changed and your role has changed. Um, you probably, you know, you can see the game a bit easier in, it, in your later years, but you can't necessarily do the running that you once did. So it, it did change and evolve over, over the course of my career. Um, I, I enjoyed playing in lots of different positions, but I have to say centre midfield was my favourite. Yeah. And I recall that Ipswich actually finished fifth in the Premier League one of those seasons. That must have been something, wasn't it? It was, do you know, I had, I had six years actually at both Ipswich and Charlton, two brilliant football clubs. Um I was fortunate enough to be captain of both and captain both actually to their highest Premier League finishes, Ipswich fifth and, and Charlton seventh. So that's something to be, you know, I'm very proud of. Um, I'm very pleased to be associated with both of those football clubs, both very similar. Actually, I, even Bournemouth, I'd put them all in the same category, very family orientated, very much a community football club. Um, so I was lucky really to play for the clubs that I did. And, and they were all very similar in, in that respect. So it's your time at Ipswich and then, um, into the starting um, sort of seasons with Charlton that your international career really started to flourish. And, you know, obviously you opted for Ireland based on your mother being Irish. Is that right? Um, was there any, ever any like England, Ireland sort of, you know, mental equation in your head or was it always going to be Ireland? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd uh, had no um, international recognition from England whatsoever, whether that be schoolboy, under 21s, be internationals, nothing. I'd abs, you know, there's there's no um, recognition whatsoever. And I got a phone call at home. Mick McCarthy phoned me at home. I was probably about 24, I think, at the time, and and asked if if I'd be interested in playing for Ireland. I, I'd actually told George Burley that I, you know, I was eligible for Ireland and wanted to play for Ireland. And I think George had passed the message on to Mick McCarthy, and he phoned me at home. And I had no hesitation. There was a B international in a couple of weeks' time, Mick said, and straight away I was like, "Yep, yeah, I'd like to play." And that was it, really. And there was there was you know no hesitation whatsoever from me, and um, and and loved loved it. Uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed playing for them. Um, you know, again, the the team spirit, the camaraderie, um, how close we were as a group. That I don't know that the supporters were 
absolutely unreal. You know, no, I don't think any international tournament is complete without Ireland being there because their fans just make it so, so good. And you got to play in the World Cup, didn't you? Played in 2002, yeah, in, in um, Japan and South Korea. So uh, mixed mixed emotions, scored against Cameroon, which was amazing. First game uh, under a bit of pressure because Roy Keane had departed the camp and um, we were 1-0 down at half-time as well. So we hadn't played particularly well in the first half. And so we needed a result, managed to get one. And uh, so that, that sort of got us up and running the tournament. Um, and then missed a penalty in the game against Spain, where actually I thought we were the better team. We, we drew against Germany. Germany got to the final that year. Um, we drew against them. Um, we, we drew against Spain, got beat on penalties. So a few mixed emotions, but I mean, wow, to, to sort of represent your country is one thing, to do it at a World Cup's another, and then to score as well. I was like, wow, it's yeah. like just amazing. I mean, surely as a footballer, you're constantly, um, I, I suppose it must be very difficult. I, th- I know that Eddie Howe is always kind of never taken time to appreciate what the peak of his career is. Um, it may be ahead of him. It may have, you know, be behind him. Who knows? Um, for you, playing in the World Cup final, uh, sorry, World Cup finals, scoring. I wish I had. Scoring, did any part of you think, my goodness, I've made it? Uh, I think much like Eddie, really. I, I, you don't think about it at the time. Um you know, it's only now really that I'm able to sort of sit back, reflect. And I, I, I was, it's funny because I was, uh, I was watching a, a Kieran Dyer um, or listening, sorry, to a Kieran Dyer podcast that, that he did with an Ipswich newspaper. And he picked his best ever 11 that he played with at Ipswich. And he mentioned me in it and, and he picked, he picked me in his 11. And he said, you know, he was, he, he was someone that was um, uh, seven out of 10 at everything, really. He said, you know, not outstanding at anything, um, not the most technically gifted player, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I can, he said, he said, Graham Sooner said to him, at the end of your career, if you can look in the mirror and say that you've got everything out of your career that you possibly could have done, then that, that's, that is the ultimate accolade. And Kieran said he couldn't. He said, but when he looked at my career, I was someone that got everything out that I possibly could have done. And I think that's what gives me the most pleasure, actually. You know, when I look back now, and I've, I've, my dad's done scrapbooks, I've got a few around me here. Um, when I look back and look at what I, I did do in the game, you know, I was never the best player. I never played at the ultimate level, if you like, um, you know, on a regular basis. But I got everything I possibly could have done out of my career. And I look back with a lot of satisfaction that that was the case. And obviously you've forged quite a a career now as a a media uh, pundit and uh, broadcaster. But were you ever tempted to go into coaching? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, I think there's always an element of you that thinks, what if? I When I was at Charlton, Ian Dowie uh, was the manager and he actually asked me to be his reserve team manager. Um, but I was, at the time, trying to think, about 33, possibly. And, and I sort of felt he was trying to pension me off too soon. I still thought I could play a bit longer and didn't want it, didn't want that responsibility at that that point because I wanted to be able to concentrate on trying to get into the first team rather than being a reserve manager and maybe he was on the bench for the first team and playing a bit part really. I wanted to still be a player. So uh, that opportunity came and passed. When I when I finished my goal really was to try and leave as many doors open as possible and which one I might fall through if you like which which opportunity is going to be the biggest and um at, at 35 when i finished the, the one that happened to be you know 
the door that opened was the media one. You know, I ended up doing more and more. Um, I, 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 I sort of got involved in um, Late Kickoff, which was a, 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 the local sort of BBC um, show for, for um, football league clubs. Started presenting that um, and, and doing lots more games, coverage, commentaries. Um, so it, it just happened to be the door that opened. I did apply for the interest job once, um, but they'd made a, their mind up at that particular time that they wanted someone with more experience. Totally understood that. And I think now the fact I've been out the game for nearly 11 years now um, without coaching, I think the chances of me now becoming a manager or a coach are, are slim. You know, you, you never rule anything out, never say never. But I think the opportunity is probably, a, a, the opportunity now to be a manager is probably gone. I always say as well that if I was a manager, I'd probably be divorced because I'm the sort of person, I'm the sort of person that lives and breathe. I, I live and breathe football now as a pundit and, and Paula gets the hump now if I'm watching too much football, which I do an awful lot of. Um, if I was a manager, I'd, I wouldn't be able to put the ball away. I'd be watching every game that my team's been involved in, who we're coming up against. I'd never be able to relax. And, my, you know, my mind would be away the whole time. So I'd be divorced if I was a, if I was a boss now. It's funny when you, um, as you've been sort of uh, working very closely with the Premier League, you've seen how it's become, it's evolved into a slick product and the quality of football that we're seeing is is just amazing. In terms of individual players, uh, loyalty um, and their personal love of the game, do you think that those type of players would be able to make the moral decisions that players like you did back in you know, the mid-90s when it was a case of, shall we play this match against Bristol City or not? No, I think I think they probably would. I mean, I, th I think we've seen just recently how the Premier League players have come together with this NHS um, funding, and and you know Jordan Henderson's obviously played a big part in that in in trying to get as many players as possible to donate to a fund that, that's going to help the NHS because of the work that they've done. So I think the players have got that that moral um, understanding of of what needs to be done at times. Um, I think I think. Generally, it has changed. I think it, it, you know, football has is very different now than it was, you know, when I was playing. Um, I mean, obviously, the money side of it is is huge now in in the Premier League. But I think I think players generally have a have that moral compass and understand when, um, you know, things need to be done. And as I say, just recently, that NHS stuff that Jordan Henderson's it, um, instigated, I think, has been a big thing. So 20 years on from when you were at the club, how does it feel to see Bournemouth in, in the Premier League? I mean, what what did you think when they got promoted? Amazing. I uh, I remember I remember actually watching Bournemouth play Ipswich. Uh, I went to the game at Pullman Road and it was a two-all draw. Uh, I think Kevin Jones might have scored, actually. Yeah, he scored in the last minute. But I remember uh, coming, coming away from the game being so impressed by Bournemouth that I had to text Eddie just to say to him, Eddie, you've got an unbelievable team there. Um, you, you, the way you, you you want the game to be played and the way your team played today, you should be incredibly proud. And I remember, I remember texting him that after the game because I was so impressed with what I'd seen. Um, so, I, I mean, to see, to see where they are now, it's just, it is just a fairy tale, really. When you think the club could have been out of existence, what, less than 25 years ago, to being in the Premier League now and, and, you know, especially with the size of the ground, really, compared to some of the other grounds in the Premier League as well. Um, I, and I've been fortunate enough to come down to, 
to the vitality now and, and commentate on lots of games and, and see how it's changed. And um, I've, I've been to the training ground, just the training facility, just around you know around the back of the ground as well. And um, it, it, it's just phenomenal, really, to, to see where they are and, and what they're doing. It's it's it gives me real pleasure every time I drive to, to Bournemouth and, and and come to a game just to just to think, wow, look how much this has changed. This is great. Not many people really gave Bournemouth a chance in their first season, but against the odds, we finished 16th. And I think the next season, we finished on a very low points tally, but we managed to finish ninth in the Premier League on 46 points, which if you get that amount now, you're talking maybe 13th or 14th. This season, though, we've seen a bit of a struggle and we're sitting in the relegation zone. Obviously, we don't know what how things are going to play out at the moment, but what, what's been your assessment of this season so far for us? Well, I think... I think the biggest thing for me has been the amount of injuries that, that the club have suffered, really, and particularly at the back. You know, you think of the players that have been out. It's been it's been quite frightening, really. I think that's been a big problem, um, and even up front actually as well. You know, Josh King being out as well. Um, David Brooks, I'm a big fan of. I think I think he's been missed this year as well. His creativity from from midfield. You know, I think he was getting to a point where he was ready to really kick on. Um, so him. So we've been out this season, I think, has been a, a massive blow. But I think the amount of injuries that Bournemouth have had to cope with this year has, has been unprecedented, really. Certainly, I don't think Eddie's had as many injuries as this year um, in any other season that he's, that he's had uh, in the Premier League than he's had this season. So I think that's been a really difficult thing to, to deal with. Um, I, I think Eddie's someone that, that looks to improve all the time. You know, he, he wants to get better. He wants to work out how he can improve. But when you've got that many problems and that many people on the treatment table at one time, I think that's incredibly difficult. And how would you rate the chances of avoiding relegation when the season does restart? What do you reckon? If and when. I mean, we, we don't know yet what's going to happen, do we? And, and um, it's going to be really interesting to see what does happen in the, in the, in the coming months um, as to whether the season does come back or not. I think it will. My, my gut feeling is that it'll probably be behind closed doors, which wouldn't wouldn't be ideal. But I think that's that's my gut feeling. Um, I, I think they've got a decent chance. Why not? I mean, the fixture list is pretty daunting. Um, but there's there's talk about. I think there's talk about some of the games being sort of um, at neutral grounds as well. So that'll take away the home advantage. I, I think I think Bournemouth can will stay up. Fingers crossed. I'm hoping that we do. I'm I'm comparing us against other teams. I mean, Brighton's their that's some of their home games are are awful. They've not got many, um, you know, decent um, home matches left. I think it's like Manchester City, and then they've got the rival Arsenal, etc. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Um, what's your plan for the future? Have you got a long term plan, or is it to carry on with what you're doing in the media business? Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because when you when you're a player, you're always sort of you know, everyone sort of gets get to thirty five, and then there's always someone younger coming up to take your place. And you, eventually, you go over the cliff. You sort of get to the top of the cliff. You get to the end of your career, and you fall off the other end, and that's it. It's finished. I suppose what I'm doing now is pretty similar, really. You're going to have a shelf life, and at some point, I'm I'm sort of climbing that hill at the moment. I'm forty six now, so I, the longer I can do it and keep going and keep going and get going until eventually I end up sort of falling off that cliff then that's that's pretty much what i'm trying to do you know every year there's there's people retiring and people want to get into the into the media um you know we, gary neville jamie carragher rio fernand the list goes on the players that are much younger than me and who've, who've sort of come through now so at some point i know you know you think you know, alan hansen and mark lawrenson and people like that eventually you you it doesn't matter who you are how good you are you're going to be over that cliff and as long as i can sort of stay at the top of that cliff as long as possible. That's my that's my plan, really. 
Well, Matt, there's always a place for you on the AFC Bournemouth podcast. You know that. Well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I might take you up on that if I get sats anytime soon. Uh, so there's been um, a couple more questions that have been sent in. Um, Sean Barker, who uh, you may know has been the son of Jeff Barker, who did the classic Gold Breakfast Show. He said, remind yeah. mornings that him and Steve Jade would go into 2CR in Southcote Road and uh, do a breakfast show each week. Can you remember yeah. those Bit of a double act, weren't we, me and Jonesy at one point? Uh, we used to go in for about 20 minutes and, and um, disrupt his show pretty much on a, on a Friday morning, I think. Um, even I think he even gave a few recipes out occasionally because my, my nan was quite famous with the lads because when we went up north, she always used to come and meet us at the hotel or, or or the game. She didn't really like watching me play because she was a bit nervous watching me play, but she'd certainly come and watch you know, or come and meet me to say hello after the game. And she'd always have cake for the team bus on the way home. So um, she was quite famous in that respect uh, with, the, with the lads on the bus. So a um, couple of her recipes, I think, went on to, onto that um, breakfast show as well. But, yeah, we were a bit of a double act, me and Jonesy, for, for a little while. As I say, we roomed together as well. He, he, I had a flat down there, which he, he rented a room off me. Um, he actually lived in London, but during the week he lived he lived down in Bournemouth with me. So um, he was he was a great character. Still still see him actually, Jonesy down again. He's a he's um, he's an ambassador at West Ham, so I see him a, I see him at West Ham quite a bit, and it's so always good to catch up with him. Yeah, and uh, we also had this question submitted as well. Uh, probably difficult for you to answer given the fact that um, you know you've played in so many matches and you can't remember them all. But what was your best game you played in Crazy Ball? That was Chris Hubbard. Hmm, blimey, I don't know about my best game, crikey! I don't, I don't know about my personal um, best game. I remember one game that sticks out is when we beat Peterborough five four. You might. Oh, remember remember that's that Jonesy's favourite. That one. Is that yeah. Jones? Well, of course it is. Yeah, we scored it. Few, you know, so, uh, I think George, George and Dar might have scored in that one as well, if I remember rightly. Um, so, yeah, beating Peterborough 5 4 sticks out. I remember that one. Yeah, superb, superb. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and have you on the podcast. Really do appreciate it. And uh, keep doing all your good work with the Premier League. No, thank you. Thanks very much um, for having me on. Uh, and can I just say, uh, I know it's strange times, but um, everyone stay healthy, stay well, uh, and hopefully we'll see you back at the Vitality very soon. Cheers, Matt. Brilliant. So that was the Matt Holland interview. And if you did want to watch it again, just go to youtube.com forward slash AFCB podcast. There will be another full unabridged interview tomorrow. So do wait for that to drop. But for now, thanks for listening to the lockdown interviews. Kilban. Just was pulled away in the middle. It'll come to Holland. He's done it! Matt Holland with the equaliser! What a moment for the Irish! And didn't he strike it well? Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.